Carl Stewart is an investment advisor representative of Carl Stewart Investment Advisor Incorporated. Call or text Carl now at 512-836-0590. Now, here's Carl. Good afternoon and welcome to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here now in our 29th year together. Money Talk is a broadcast about the world of financial and investment planning where you always determine our agenda by calling or texting 512-836-0590. Also, you may listen online at newsradioklbj.com right now or go there at your convenience and download podcasts of our previous shows. You may also go to SoundCloud, a free app that will also have our broadcasts without the commercial breaks. And this Thursday after the news at 6 p.m., we will rebroadcast today's show. It's always a terrific idea to call or text at the beginning of the hour, giving me, I hope, ample time to do my best to answer your question. As always, I take today's calls first, then today's texts, then any remaining texts that I have not fully answered. Third, 512-836-0590. Here's a text that just came in. Hi, Carl. Last Saturday, you were kind enough to read a text and answer a question about income-generating closed-end funds. You recommended skepticism about high yields in the 9 to 12% range and encouraged understanding any fund strategy for generating income. In the case of those that caught my eye, the funds are centered around writing covered call options And it looks like that's a fairly conservative approach with the upside being income in a down or sideways market, but with the possibility of missing out on significant gains during a sustained market rally. Does that sound like a correct assessment of the covered call writing strategy to you? It does. And let me just kind of unpack that for people because covered call writing is a probably the most conservative option strategy and it's been around i've been around this for 45 years and it was around before before i got started so what you do is you own a stock and then you sell an option that allows the buyer of that option to call away from you to exercise the option to buy the stock from you at a predetermined price for a predetermined period of time So let's suppose you buy a stock that's $34 a share and you sell an option, you give someone the opportunity to buy that stock from you at $35 a share between now and let's say the end of October. Now, one of three things is going to happen. Sometime between now and then, the stock's going to go above $35 a share or it's going to stay flat or it's going to decline in price. If it goes above $35 a share, then the person or the entity, the institution from whom who bought that option and you got the sales proceeds, they bought the option, they paid you for it, you're sitting there with the cash, the stock is now $36 a share. They have an economic incentive to buy it from you, exercise the option because they buy it at 35 and the market price is 36. If, however, the stock doesn't go above 35, stays at 34, then they have no incentive to exercise the option and they, the, the call option expires worthless and you have pocketed the option premium. 
the same thing occurs if the stock price falls. So the worst that happens in a covered call strategy can be that the stock is called away from you. Now, that doesn't, that's not an irrevocable decision. You could abide this hypothetical stock at 34. It could go to 36. And before it's exercised, you could buy back that option, which, of course, you would buy back at a loss because it would cost more than what you sold it for, and write another option. As I said, this is considered a pretty conservative option strategy. And I agree with your assessment that it is it will generate additional income but that it will not generate large capital gains because it's because the stocks would be called away. Now, if they don't use leverage, and I talked about that last week, then there's the option premium that gives you the large yield. Different market conditions result in different levels of option premiums. In quiet, low volatility markets, as you would predict, the op- what people will pay for an option is less than in a volatile market where things are going up and down a, a great deal. So I have no problem with this as a, as a strategy. I've just realized over my career that the kinds of returns that the stock market provides, let's just say an 8% annualized return. The market really goes up 8% a year. You could go up, have a great year like 2021, and a real stinker like 2022, and a good year like this year. Add it all together, you get inflation-beating returns. But at any given period of time, you could have a negative return. So giving up the strong upside, in my view, is would get you subpar returns compared to simply holding stocks or holding a stock index. So there's got to be a reason to do it. And if it's income that you want and not capital appreciation, then this seems to me like a reasonable strategy. Thanks for the text. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Here's another text. Hi. How many months should I use to dollar cost average back into the market? I have some CDs that are are complete, it says. I think that person means they've matured. This is a really interesting question, and I dealt with this this week. I have never been able to find any data that indicate that if you have a lump sum, you're better off to invest it all at one time in equities, if that's your plan, or to invest in equities over time. There's no question that if you invest it over time, if the market falls, then as you buy incremental shares, you're buying more shares. Because let's say you start with $100,000. Let's do the math. Let's start with $120,000 and do it for six months. So you're putting putting in $20,000 a month for six months. Some months, the prices are higher, and your 20000 buys fewer shares. Some months, the prices are lower, your 20000 buys more shares, and you have a lower average cost. Does that work? In theory, it does. I don't know that – I've never seen it proven out, okay? You have periods of time, like 2021, where you had month after month of rising prices, and periods of time, like 2022, where you had month after month of falling prices. I have come to this conclusion. 
If you're investing in your employer-sponsored retirement plan, you're dollar cost averaging because you don't have a choice. You're putting money in every pay period. That's terrific, and you ought to do that. But if you have a lump sum because your CD's matured, you've inherited a sum, or whatever the case is, the primary reason for dollar cost averaging, I've come to believe, is psychological. The fact that you had that $120,000 and you put it in and the market dropped 10%, and now you're down $12,000, and that's an uncomfortable experience. If that kind of thing could happen, yes. Could it really bother you? I don't know. That's a function, frankly, of your personality and investment experience. If you feel like that would really you know, be a ha- hassle, ruin your life for a few months, then yes, I dollar cost average. And I, personally, I like the six months. I have no guarantee that'll work. But I understand for people who have a lump sum, it may be more comfortable doing it in over a period of time. Thanks for your text. Time for me to take a break. We have all of our lines available and no incoming texts. So call or text 512-836-0590. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on NewsRadioKLBJ.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. When you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. Here comes in a text. Okay. Let's see. Carl, when financial analysts say, quote, investors are moving out of technology stocks and into staples or whatever sector, what are they saying? Aren't the same number and shares still outstanding and owned by someone? Thanks, Ed. So what they're talking about uh, is they're looking at flows uh, in no doubt uh, using some kind of quantitative analysis, and they're looking at flows in shares and price action, and they're not suggesting that they're somehow creating more shares. They're simply saying, for example, uh, sectors of the S&P 500. So you'll get a year like 2022, which was a bad year for the S&P 500, but it was a good year for energy stocks. So it's plausible that people were moving out of technology stocks, for example, which had been real stars in 2021, and moving into energy stocks. Uh, I don't actually know how that's calculated. The same number of shares are outstanding, so obviously supply and demand is going to drive price. It may simply be something as much as an inference that one sector is moving up and another sector is moving down. And from that, the, the, uh, the pundits on Wall Street then form an opinion that people are selling energy and buying tech or whatever the case is. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Okay, let's see here. I've got another text. If I can find it, I will tell you. Find it here on my computer. Okay. Well, let's just try this one again. Sorry to keep you waiting. It says, Carl, can you talk about how... Can you talk about how... <laughs> something to do with gold, but I'm not getting it up here. I may have uh, ask, I may have Garrett read this to me. Garrett, can you read that last one that came in at 20 minutes after the hour? Because I'm having a hard time getting it. 
Okay. It's something about gold. I'm sorry. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Here comes another text. Let's see if I can get the if I can get the uh, <laughs> get this software to work. We'll find out here. Okay. Well, I'm having trouble. I apologize. I'm back into here we go. Let's see if we can get this down here. The last one I get is that one at 434. Okay. I'm just going to go ahead and we're going to work on this during the break because it doesn't make any sense to have you sit here and listen to me fumble around with the computer when I'm not able to get anything. 512-836-0590. So let's just look at what's going on with mortgage rates. This was the lead, one of the lead stories, if you will, front page of the Wall Street Journal yesterday. Mortgage rates hit 7.23%, the highest since 01 and applications fall to the lowest level since 1995 as the home market continues to sputter. Mortgage rates pushed to a 22-year high this week, making it tougher for the housing market to emerge from its stark slowdown. The average 30-year fixed mortgage came with an interest rate of 7.23%, according to data published Thursday by Freddie Mac. Some borrowers are paying even loftier rates. The rate was 7.09% a week ago. It's first time above 7%. Well, it sounds like I've got a caller on here. Let me see if I can do that. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. I'm just going to have to take the caller with that. I'm st- here we go. Okay, I finally got this. Okay, let's see if we can get up a bit. Stephen, good. Stephen, you're on the air. How may I help? Hello, Stephen? Garrett, I can't hear Stephen. Is he on the air? Okay. Folks, if you... Well, I don't hear. I've got no... I hear you, Garrett. I hear no audio from Stephen. I'm sorry. Stephen, you're on the air. Can you hear me? I can't hear you. Okay. Okay. Troy, you're on the air. How may I help? Hi, Carl. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm struggling with good. my software, but I'm okay. What's up, my friend? <laughs> well, I wanted to see if you're a point of discussion on the opportunity cost loss to uh, getting a conversion to a Roth IRA. When I convert, I have to pay my taxes. Yes. And I know the purpose of it is because we think maybe in 26 taxes will be lower, but it seems like the... I had 30000 in taxes that I paid up front that I'm going to lose the opportunity to have that 30000 being invested and, and, yeah. and uh, staying invested and, and earning, you know, earning. Yeah, that's a great question. I was reading about this today. If you make the following assumptions, if you assume that the tax rate you'll pay on taking money out of your IRA and converting, if you assume that tax rate is the same tax rate that you will be in at a later date when you take the money out tax-free from the Roth. And if you assume you make the same investments with the same return, it's an absolute wash. You're neither better off nor worse off than doing the conversion, Troy. But what occurs is a couple of things. In the real world, tax rates could go higher and Mm -hmm. you'd be better off to do the Roth conversion today 
The second is what I've observed is that as people uh, get older, if they've done a good job of saving and investing, that they get to the point where they don't want the required minimum distribution and they have to take it. And it really frustrates them. And so they like the idea of the Roth not having a required minimum distribution. Also, a lot of people have worked and participated in a 401k plan and have pre-tax dollars in there. And when they retire, a combination of Social Security and required minimum distributions can be more than they need to live on. And they look back Mm -hmm. and say, I wish I had done a conversion so that I wouldn't have to be forced to take the money out. And then finally, some people, it's just a personal decision, some people say, look, I've saved and invested, and when I pass away, if my heirs have to pay income tax to get the money out of the beneficiary IRA, that's fine with me, so what? Others say, no, I'd prefer that my children or grandchildren have the ability to take the money out on a tax-free basis. So from a mathematics standpoint, to finish, if you assume the same tax rate and the same investment rate, then it doesn't matter. But if you think those other factors are important to you, then that would justify the Roth conversion, Troy. Okay? Well, Carl, as usual, you gave an awesome answer. Thank you very much. Okay, you bet. Thanks for calling. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. I see that Neil is on the air, but we're at the bottom of the hour. I'm having some trouble here with my. Uh, <laughs> I'm having some trouble here with my uh, with my Voxy. I've got somebody here. This says uh, I'm talking about living in Steiner Ranch and about greening up. Well, that's clearly not us. And that came in at 422. Let's look at this. Here's one about gold. Let's see if we can get this. Okay. Any advice on target date funds? Um, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're at the bottom of the hour. We're going to take a break. Take a break for the news. I'm going to see if I can work on this software with Garrett. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Stick around for the second half. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on NewsRadioKLBJ.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here for another 25 minutes together. And if you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. You may listen online right now at newsradioklbj.com or go there at your convenience and download previous broadcasts. You can also go to SoundCloud and download them there as well. And then this Thursday, after the news at 6, we will rebroadcast today's show. I did get a quick text regarding Roth conversions, that question I was answering at the end of the first half hour. It said, regarding Roth conversions, they may also prevent higher Medicare premiums. So thanks for that. 512-836-0590. Neil, you're on the air. How may I help? Hey, Carl. Uh, great show. I thanks. appreciate uh, all the years that you've been doing it. My <laughs> question is about the commodity gold, and yes. I would like to know how you see it fitting into a portfolio. I currently have about 4% of my assets in GLD, and I didn't know if it's something that you buy and just hold on forever or uh, how to think about it. And I'll hang up and listen. Thank you. Okay, Neil, thank you. 
It's a terrific question. I've, I've been in the investment arena for 45 years, and I started in January, uh, maybe it's 44 years, who can count? I started in January, I got here in 78, but I really started in January 79, and gold peaked in 1980. And on an inflation-adjusted basis, Today, it's still not back to that $800, even though it's between $1,900 and $2,000 per ounce. And for the longest time, the the people who seemed to me to be promoting the ownership of gold were kind of uh, out, in, out in the left field, so to speak. You had to get gold because you'd do that with your dried food and your shotgun and, and go to the you know go to the woods. And so I was really skeptical of having gold as part of a portfolio. But my views have evolved, which is what politicians say when they change their mind. I've changed my mind. Uh, the good news is, and you, and you already do this, Neil, you can have direct access to gold in a financial asset, which is an exchange-traded product, trades like an exchange-traded fund. The big ones are GLD, uh, and the and the IAU the IAU is the uh, iShares, and um, they both have many shares GLDM and GIAUM, which have even lower expense ratios. What really got me thinking about it was uh, talking with portfolio managers, particularly some that had started back in the 19th century, believe it or not, and were based in Europe and moved to the United States as the uh, World War II was gearing up. And perhaps because of that uncertainty, they'd always had a part of the portfolio in gold. And they began to publish some white papers that I was reading. And I, I, be, I really became aware of and even convinced that a smaller portion of a portfolio in gold in sustained bear markets have actually outperformed bad markets for stocks. And and also, it's not guaranteed, but in inflationary environments, gold can also be a good hedge as well. And frankly, uh, unlike silver, it really isn't used for anything except a store of value. Now, in some countries, like uh, the subcontinent, like in India, uh, people wear their gold. Uh, but the fact is that the global increase in supply annually is about 2%. So it can't be manipulated like currencies can. And because you, people can buy the bullion, which I would recommend against, they can buy the coins, which I recommend strongly against, and they can buy the mining stocks. Now, I would not oppose to mine to the gold mining stocks. The problem is that in good times for gold, they tend to outperform, and in bad times for gold, they tend to underperform the metal. And each company has a different cost of production, just like oil and gas exploring companies do. So you don't necessarily, unless you do deep fundamental analysis, you don't know how profitable a gold mining company might be because they have different costs of production. So I really think the exchange-traded product is really the way to go. And you have 4% in your portfolio. I'm comfortable with 7%. Nothing magical about that. Uh, years, oh, maybe three years ago, uh, I was looking at a, at the largest um, 
manager, asset manager in the world and looking at their global asset allocation fund, they happen to have 7% in gold. I thought, you know, 10 seems a bit strong to me. Uh, and so maybe 7% in an ET, ETF or ETP made sense. Last year was a, pr- a pretty good example of the hedging quality of it with the S&P down 18% and the NASDAQ down about 32%. And the Bloomberg Ag down about 13 or 14 percent. Gold was essentially flat, as I recall. IAU was down something like 63 basis points. That doesn't mean it's going to go up all the time either. Uh, as of yesterday, that particular exchange-traded product's up 4.83 percent. That's not bad, but obviously it's not doing as well as the stock market is. But it's doing better year-to-date than the bond market. So I do think it fits into a portfolio. I don't think it's a tactical allocation, which is a fancy way of saying that you're going to be in and out of it. I don't see it that way at all. I see it as being a long-term situation where you have it as part of a diversified portfolio. Thanks for the question. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Carl, hi. We have $850,000 total in two IRAs and mutual funds. We have 150000 in Marcus Savings, yielding 4.5%. Is this crazy? We are 65. What do you think of moving all the funds to, into Marcus? Well, first of all, you're not crazy. If you're crazy, you probably wouldn't have $850,000 in financial assets. Now, I think you'd be making a big mistake. People confuse longevity with, with life expectancy. The odds are that you uh, have access to nutrition, you have access to health care, because people with assets in this country do, and people without assets frequently do not. And as a result, you probably are going to live a long time. And if you're 65, you're a 25-year investor. And if you're a 25-year investor, moving into a savings account would be an absolutely terrible idea. Now, right now, Cash is doing really well. I mean, you can get into a money market fund and get over 5%. But rates go up and rates go down. We had a 40-year period of declining interest rates, and people who kept all their money in savings accounts and short-term CDs are worth a fraction of what they'd be worth today and have a fraction of the buying power. You have to remember that whether you're retired or not, one of the most pernicious things that happens is the rising cost of living. And as you grow older, perhaps the rising cost of health care. So I think you would be making a huge mistake by putting that in there. Now, you have essentially a million dollars, and you have a 15% cash position. I would tell you, and this will probably make your skin crawl, that you're not going to need $150,000 in cash. You're probably prudent people. Your lifestyle's not going to change. You're not going to go off and do something crazy, to use your word. And keeping $150,000 in cash today looks really attractive. But sometime, perhaps in a year or so, rates are going to start to fall. And when they do, so is the return on your market savings. So no, I would not do that. In fact, if I were in your shoes, I'd reduce the market savings and put it more in stock mutual funds and bond mutual funds. You're listening to Money Talk. We've got about a quarter of hour left. I'm going to take a break. A good time for you to call or text 512-836-0590. I'll be back. 
You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on NewsRadioKLBJ.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. When you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. Here's a text. Hi, Carl. About two weeks ago, did I hear you say that bonds have some room to grow? I asked because in my, I noticed in my 401k it's out of balance with 25% in a money market that could be moved to equity or bonds. Can you please comment? And thanks so much for what you do, Brian. You're welcome. Well, bonds for a long time have been very unattractive, and we got the 10-year Treasury down to barely over 1%, and now it's over 4%, and you can get 5% easily in a money market fund. As I'm not in favor of that, I might add, for your 401k, and I'm glad you asked this because a money market fund, is if it's in a retirement plan, it ought to be there as a parking place because you're going to go put it someplace else because you're not going to take the money out and spend it because it's in your retirement plan. And so you want to be in longer-term assets. The challenge has been that the longer-term asset associated with interest rates, bonds, have been very unattractive. That is, in my view, no longer the case. And as a result of that, I think that bonds become attractive again. Uh, And the math is this way. If you own a security that has a 2% coupon and interest rates go to 3%, that's going to put real downward pressure because 2% to 3% is a 50% move in in rates, right? But if you have a a bond that has a 5% coupon and rates go to 6, that's a much smaller mathematical impact and you'll earn back that money much more quickly. So I think bonds now are much more attractive than they've been in many, many years. I'm not suggesting that rates won't go higher. Obviously, no one knows whether, frankly, Fred Chairman Powell doesn't know whether rates are going to go higher or not. But I think this is a good entry point. Now, let me be a little more tactical and say how I would do this. I would avoid high-yield bonds, not because they're bad, but because they're positively correlated to stocks. And what you're hoping will happen is that your bonds will provide you some hedging and downside protection when stocks decline, which they inevitably do. Last year, worst year in 40 years for 60 stock, 40 bonds, so it doesn't always work. But now, with the yields where they are today, I think there's more likely the odds that bonds will provide more of a hedge. And I think it's also likely that sometime in the reasonably near future, rates will peak, and when we get a slower economy and or lower inflation, rates are likely to come down, and you actually have the opportunity to you actually have the opportunity to have a positive total return of income plus some appreciation. Whereas if you stay in money market funds or short-term CDs, your yields are going to come down as short-term interest rates come down. Now, the fact that you have 25% in the money market fund, well, I don't know, Brian, just how much is, if it's 75% in stock funds, would I put 25% in bond funds? The answer is yes. But if you have a different asset allocation, then you really need to stop and think about that. Why? Because 
as regular listeners know, and I harp on this all the time, asset allocation drives return. And when you start to put together a portfolio, you have to look at the correlation and performance characteristics of the different asset classes. The other thing I would say, in addition to not owning high-yield bonds, unless you want to count them in your stock bucket, then that's fine because they're really highly correlated. Last time I checked, over 80% correlated to to large-cap stocks. The other thing is you don't have to buy long-term bonds. There's more price risk in those than there is an intermediate term. In fact, if I had the opportunity in in my 401k and I had a short-term bond fund and an intermediate-term bond fund, personally, I'd split the money that way, make kind of a barbell out of it. And if I'm wrong and rates go up, your short-term bond fund will do better. And if I'm right and rates eventually come down, the intermediate bond fund will do better. But right now we have this thing called an inverted yield curve where short-term rates are much higher than long-term rates. I was looking today, uh, and for example, through yesterday, and I'm using exchange-traded funds and actively managed funds, but the Bloomberg AG, the exchange-traded funds, AGG, uh, is up on a year-to-date basis 0.62%. But I was looking at a well-regarded short-term actively managed bond fund, and believe it or not, it's up 3.91%. Why is that? Because it stays in short-term bonds, rates have gone up, and it's collecting those coupons, it's getting those rates, while long-term rates have moved up and bonds have come down somewhat. So that's, that's how I would do that if I were in your shoes. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text. We're running out of time. I have all the lines available and no incoming texts. Call or text 512-836-0590. So I was talking about mortgage rates and its impact on residential real estate nationally. I got these numbers uh, yesterday on the Austin residential real estate market through July. So the median price for a home was $483,000. That's down 10% from a year ago. I think more tellingly, the price per square foot at $238 was down 14%. Let me just stop and say this is one reason why I tell people a house is not an investment. It doesn't always go up in value. If you were the unlucky person who bought, let's just use a huge number, a million-dollar house, in July of last year, using these data, you're down $140,000. You may be underwater on that house. Now, if you'd bought that million-dollar house a year earlier and it was up 35%, I get that as well. But the fact is that per square foot's down 14%. Let me share you some other things. So the uh, number of uh, the sales, uh, 3,007 homes were sold in July. That's down 13%. The inventory is up 25% at three and a half months. Now, I have read, and I'm not a real estate expert, that a healthy market is six months. But I suspect, I don't know this about Austin, but I've read this nationally, new home construction has really dropped off uh, because fewer people qualify for a new home with the mortgage rates over 7%, and people sitting on a 3% or a 4% or a 2.8% mortgage are less likely and less motivated to sell 
when they know that the next house they buy is going to have a 7% mortgage. So, yes, you're going to see inventory up, uh, but it's, uh, it's a function uh, of, of that phenomenon. And the number of days on the market in Austin uh, was 48. And that's again, doesn't sound like that long, but that's up 71% from, from where it was. And uh, new listings are basically flat down 2%. So I just, I had some very good people in my office this week, and they were surprised when I explained to them that, <laughs> that real estate doesn't always go up. And I think that's something that we're learning about right now. 512. 836-0590. I think I'll take the next three or four minutes to talk a little bit about what I said earlier. And I write this in a letter this month that'll be posted shortly on the KLBJ website. And that's the distinction between saving and investing. You can be a saver and you can be an investor. But a saver is a person who's interested in her nominal rate of return. That is, I want to know that when I look at my account at the bank, the savings loan, or the credit union, that my $50,000 is worth $50,000, not $45,000. And I'll take whatever interest rate I can get. An investor is looking for financial independence, retirement, the ability to educate children or grandchildren. That's a whole different situation. And in that case, they have to look at not the nominal rate of return, but the real rate of return. What do I mean by that? I mean, what is the return you're getting after you subtract inflation and after you subtract taxes? Because historically, I'm not saying it's true all the time, because it's not, but historically, cash has a negative real rate of return. Some of my older listeners will remember back in the day, in the early 80s, when you could sit around and talk about the double-digit CD returns that you could get. And the fact was you could. Maybe you got 10 or 11 or 12% on your six-month CD. But the truth was that that 10 or 11 or 12% was less than the rate of inflation. And after you paid your income taxes on that CD, it was even less. Am I arguing against cash or CDs? Of course I am not. But I'm saying to look at your situation and determine what the objective is because capital or money has purpose. And if the purpose is one of those longer-term situations I talked about and you talk about how much you can get in bonds today, then you do not be, how shall I say it, don't not be, I don't tricked into or tricking yourself into thinking that keeping money in cash is going to help you in your long-term goals and objectives, because frankly, it's not. Well, I had a good show today. You see, you got the chance to hear me try to figure out how to run the software <laughs> on my computer. I promise I'll do a better job next week. Thank Garrett for doing his good job. And speaking of next week, as always, next Saturday after the news at four, be sure and tune in to Money Talk.